Hi, everyone. Welcome to our December webinar on defending construction workers' compensation claims in New York. My name is Tashia Rasool, and I'm a partner here with Lois Law Firm, where we handle defense of workers' compensation claims um, in New York. I personally handle only construction workers' compensation claims, and I also oversee our dedicated construction defense practice here with Lois. I'm also the author of our uh, construction Defense Handbook, which was released this year. It's available in both hard copy and PDF. So if you haven't yet gotten your copy, please let me know and I'll send you one. And also to let you know, we will have a 2021 edition that's being released in January. So if you want to wait until January to get your copy, you can certainly do so. But just let me know either way and I'll get it over to you. Okay, so now that we're at the end of the year, um, I just wanted to share with you some takeaways from the construction claims we've handled this year and uh, also share with you some notable decisions and issues that are common in construction claims and the importance of uh, collaboration between workers' compensation and general liability in order to properly defend the claims and reduce exposures. Okay, so let's get into it. One of the things that we've noticed um, happening more and more is that the board is beginning to disconnect the automatic link between a construction accident and catastrophic injuries. And what do I mean by this? Uh, generally, when a construction uh, workers' compensation claim is filed, the judges and the board, um, they, they tend to uh, be in favor of the claimant that it was a severe accident and that he has really sustained a lot of severe injuries. However, we've seen that the judges are becoming more um, wary about taking these accidents at uh, face value and they're looking at the medicals more, they're paying more attention to the witnesses, and we've actually seen a lot of claims being disallowed for um, multiple injury sites or um, surgeries that are allegedly related to the accidents and um, the claims are being established only for the minor injuries that the claimant actually sustained. Uh, small injuries such as a, a pinky finger sprain or just like a shoulder sprain as opposed to a back and neck and head injury. Um, so I, be I believe the judges and the board, they're, uh, they're becoming um, more knowledgeable about how these uh, construction claims are being filed and the volume of claims that are being filed. And, um, you know, I think they're recognizing that a lot of the claims are just uh, bogus or fraudulent claims. And they're really, really paying attention to us when we're telling them that, you know, they really weren't serious accidents and they really weren't serious injuries. Look at the medicals we have, look at the witnesses we have, look at the claimant's own testimony. So, you know, I think by um, obtaining all of the evidence we need, all the things we've talked about this year, all the collaboration and presenting them in court and educating the judges and how construction sites operate and the types of work that the claimants do, it's really helping to um, get claims disallowed. Uh, so that's good news. You know, I think the board is going in the direction that we wanted to. Um, also, the board is beginning to really recognize evidence obtained in general liability discovery. For example, 50H hearing transcripts or regular deposition transcripts or even discovery that we've obtained um, from the general liability 
claim there was a time when we were trying to uh, present, let's just say, a deposition transcript in order to uh, discredit the claimant or to show that he's made inconsistent statements and both the adversaries and the judges say, no, 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 I'm not listening to that. The claimant's here to testify in workers' compensation court and that's all that matters. But, you know, we've been pushing this issue a lot. We've been trying to use all of the evidence that we get from the general liability side and telling the judges, hey, the claimant is changing his testimony um, to suit himself and to, you know, increase uh, his, um, his, his benefits depending on the situation and in which claim he's currently trying to pursue, whether it's a workers' comp or a general liability. And I think we should take his sworn statements and the discovery that we received from, you know, the general liability claim, which is a result of the same workers' compensation claim that we're handling, and um, really look into what the claimant's saying and doing, and then make an assessment of his credibility and whether he's entitled to benefits or not. So the board is, the judges are, you know, understanding it more, and the board is really taking our arguments and these evidence um, into consideration and making decisions that are favorable to us. Um, all right, so one thing I've been talking about all year is collaboration between workers' compensation and general liability claims. I'll tell you, collaboration continues to win the day. This year, we've seen more global settlements um, than we've seen in the past. It could be because of the COVID situation. You know, claimants are more willing to settle other claims. But I will tell you from the claims that I personally handled and that my team handled this year, it really was the result of collaboration between the workers' comp and the general liability side. And of course, it, re it uh, resulted in less exposure for the clients. So highly, highly, highly recommend continuing collaboration between your workers' compensation and general uh, liability sides. If it's something your clients are not doing, please get them on board with this. It really can save them time and money on these claims. All right. Another takeaway from this year is that the prior medicals matter. And it really matters across the board in all claims, not only construction claims, but I wanted to remind you and highlight it here because as we know, the medicals drive exposure in both the workers' compensation and the general liability claims. By digging into the claimant's medical history by means of subpoena or taking his testimony, um, or even taken testimony of the doctors that he's treated with, we have seen more disallowance of claims as a whole, or disallowance of body parts or disallowance of surgeries. We've seen more fraud findings and we're seeing more and more apportionment findings, all of which help to reduce exposure. So let's not forget to really uh, dive into the claimant's medical history and also examine the current uh, medicals, um, the current treatment that he's receiving. Um, Another thing that I've been talking about all year that's really important and we've seen the way it has helped us in defending claims is investigation. As a reminder, we encourage investigation to begin from the moment the employer or the insurance carrier or the client is aware that the claimant is alleging an accident occurred and that the investigation is ongoing. So not only the initial on-site investigation, but also ongoing social media and background checks. Um, medical canvases, and also covert surveillance. We think it's very 
helpful and they can really change the path of a claim and um, reduce exposure. Now, all right, so let's get into some cases or I should say some decisions that we've seen this year on issues that are very common in construction claims. The first is the issue of coverage and um, particularly coverage by an OSIP policy. Our office handled a claim where the claimant uh, alleged that he was on an authorized coffee break um, when he was involved in an accident and sustained injuries as a result. The actual accident occurred off-site. It was across the street from the project and um, the insurance carrier denied the claim uh, on the basis that it, the accident did not uh, was not covered by the OSIP policy. Now, the argument presented by the claimant, and we also pulled in the operational policy in this claim. So both the claimant and the operational policy were arguing that because the OSIP covered the project that the claimant was working on, the OSIP should be liable. However, we focused in on the language in the policy. We brought in an underwriter to testify. We brought in the OSIP administrator to testify how the OSIP policies work and argue that because the accident did not occur on the job site that was covered by the OSIP, regardless of the fact that it could be a compensable injury, the OSIP cannot be liable and that the operational policy should be liable. Um, the board, uh, I'm sorry, the judge agreed with our position and found that the operational policy should be liable and um, discharge and remove the OSIP policy from the claim. So this was a big win. Like I said, there's no board panel, full board or third department case law on the issue. The um, operational carrier did not appeal it, so we don't have an appeal decision. But it's an argument that we're continuing to make. It's our position that the OSIP covers only the project and um, accidents that occur on the project. So even in the rare instances where the project is, I'm sorry, where the accident may have occurred off-site and would be found to be compensable, those should go under the operational policy and not the OSIP policy. So, you know, whenever these coverage issues come up, uh, please ensure that your attorneys are making all possible arguments and really focusing on the language of the policy. You know, because an OSIP is attached to a project doesn't mean it should be liable uh, when an accident occurs. Next, the court addressed the issue of Section 28 in the matter of Walchek versus Asplon Tree Expert Company. Uh, this was a third department decision. It was an occupational disease um, hearing loss claim, and the issue was date of disablement. Uh, Section 28 provides that a claimant must file his claim within two years of knowing or when he should have known that his injury was related to um, his, his job or his work environment. And this is an argument that we make all the time in these occupational disease uh, claims. And um, as you know, the board has wide discretion in setting the date of disablement. And this argument almost always gets knocked down and they 
instead focus on the date of the first PFME or the date that the claimant last worked. So in this particular case, the, the court actually used the new or should have known standard based on the fact that the claimant testified that he had hearing problems, that he had hearing loss, um, and he was working in a noisy environment. And, um, you know, he, he, he knew or should have known that the, the noisy environment caused the hearing loss even before he went to a doctor and got a medical diagnosis and got the PFME. Um, so, you know, based on this, the court said the claimant knew or should have known that there was causal relation between the hearing loss and his work environment. And because that was beyond the two-year statutory required uh, period, his claim was not timely filed. And the board also expressly said that a medical diagnosis was not required to set a date of disablement. So I personally think that this is going to be a landmark case. This is a case I am certainly going to cite uh, when I'm doing uh, summations on the issue of Section 28 and untimely filing. And I think this is a decision that, if not the trial judge, the board panel is going to have to um, follow when we make these arguments. And hopefully, we can get more claims thrown out under uh, Section 28. So. We're definitely keeping this case in our back pockets. Um, you should talk to your attorneys about uh, making these arguments as well. I think it's definitely going to help us to get some cases uh, thrown out. Okay, so also on the date of disablement, um, this is a trial level decision. It's a case that I personally tried. The facts were a little unique and there's not a lot of case law on it out there. Um, so I just wanted to share with you the kind of arguments that we made and how the law judge um, made a favorable decision. So this case was a repetitive injury claim. It was for the back and the elbows and also the knees. Um, the claimant uh, was a carpenter and he alleged that as a result of over 30 years of being a carpenter, he sustains these injuries. Um, so what happened was he last worked for, let's call it employer A in February, and then um, he stopped working for several months. And during those several months, he went to the doctor and he got PFME. And then he went back to work for our employer. Uh, during the time that he worked for our employer, he was not, he, he, he's a union worker, but he was not doing his usual carpentry work. He was more of like a shop steward and he was just doing, um, you know, not the heavy duty carpentry work. He was doing more kind of like paperwork and like recording um, information that's needed and taking attendance and so forth. Um, and then it so happened that he last worked for our employer as well. Now, generally, when we're dealing with these kinds of cases in court, the judge is quick to say, all right, the last employer you worked for as a carpenter, that's the one that's going to be liable. And they generally don't pay attention to the actual um, kind of work, you know, the details of the work that the claimant is doing when they make this last employer determination um, as it pertains to date of disablement. Uh, so, also in this particular case, 
um, the PFME date could not be used as a date of disablement because the PFME was found when the claimant was not even working for any employer. So what I argued was, um, even though he last worked for my employer, uh, the date of disablement should not be set during the time that he worked there because the kind of work that he was doing did not contribute to his injuries. Yes, he was a carpenter and he was hired as a union carpenter, but he was more of a shop steward and he was doing, um, you know, none of like the, the physical manual labor. Um, it was more of kind of like a supervisory position. Um, and we argue that the employer in which he was last exposed should be liable. The law judge listened to uh, all of the testimony. We presented um, a supervisor testimony to confirm the kind of work the claimant did. We cross-examined him. Um, there was a number of employers and carriers in notice in this claim. And we did detailed summations and the law judge uh, found that our employer was not liable because um, the kind of work that he was doing during our employment did not contribute to his injuries. Um, so in this regard, the law judge used the WCL section 44 standard, um, which, which is that the, 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 the injury, the date of disablement um, would be dependent on the field that ultimately caused the disabling condition, also known as the last employment in the same type of work. So in this particular case, the judge set the disablement based on um, the claimant last working at the, the, the employer that he stopped working for in February, um, because that's when he last did the heavy duty carpentry work. So this was a good win for us. Um, it was a very lengthy trial. There's a lot of testimony and, um, I think it's a good example of how, um, you know, being prepared and producing your witnesses is very important in making these uh, these arguments. And even though there are some arguments that the judges uh, commonly disregard, we should continue to make those arguments. Um, this case is currently on appeal by the employer that was found to be liable. So we are tracking it to see what the board panel decides. And I think this could be, um, uh, you know, case law that's going to be followed. Um, so in one of my future webinars, I will provide you with an update on how the board, uh, the board panel addresses this particular issue. Um, okay. Arising out of and in the course of employment. So the third department addressed this issue in the matter of Sarmiento versus Empire Contracting of New York Corporation. It's a, uh, a fall from scaffold claim. The issue in this particular case was that there was discrepancies in the date of loss. The claimant testified that his accident was in December. He filed a claim with the date of loss of December. However, all of his medicals um, note that there was an accident in November. Uh, the board, uh, I'm sorry, the, the court simply said because of these discrepancies, regardless of the medicals referencing an actual construction accident and injuries, because of the discrepancies in the date of loss, it disallowed the claim. Um, 
So this is a this is a good case that we're also going to be citing too because a lot of times we have claimants filing claims um, with like different dates of loss uh, noted in the C3 or in the medicals or some other document they're filing with the board and a lot of times the judges just want to like pick one of those dates right and say okay well it happened on this date and had never um, address the claimant's lack of credibility and not even knowing when the accident actually happened. Of course, this has to be supported by witness evidence, um, you know, saying that there was no accident or nothing was reported and so forth. So this is a good case to cite to when the issue is um, discrepancies in uh, the date of loss when the claimant is, you know, just providing convoluted information regarding when the accident really happened. Next, the third department addressed the issue of voluntary withdrawal from the labor market in the matter of Castro versus Baybrand Construction Corporation. Um, the issue here is something we see very often in construction claims. Uh, this fact pattern is one that I've seen a number of times, several times a year in the cases, in the cases that I handle. Um, in this particular case, the claimant returned to work and was then laid off for lack of work. The claimant did not stop working because of her injuries. However, she then went to the doctor and her doctor found that she had a temporary total disability. Then she went to court claiming that benefits should be reinstated because her doctor is finding her to be totally disabled and she cannot work. However, she also applied for unemployment benefits. And as you know, for you to apply for unemployment benefits, you're certifying that you're ready and able to work. The claimant was also a union worker and she withheld her name from the union's out of work list. This was evinced, evinced from testimony um, by a union representative. The claimant didn't look for work. Um, the court found that she was not entitled to benefits because she voluntarily withdrew from the labor market, despite the fact that her doctor was finding her to be totally disabled after the layoff. The court specifically said, it does not compel a different result. The fact of the matter is the claimant was laid off for lack of work. She was working full duty, full time. She had no injury that prevented her from working. She was laid off because there was no more work and she failed to reattach to the labor market. And because of this, she was not entitled to benefits. Like I said, this is a fact pattern I see all the time. My team sees it all the time. And this is um, definitely going to be a case we're going to rely on. Um, I like that it's a recent case. The board has addressed this issue in the past, but I like the fact that it, you know, it's come up and um, the board has issued a fresh decision on it. So we will be citing to it. Just keep in mind, you know, if the claimant goes back to work, great. The claimant stops working because they were laid off. Keep an eye on what happens next, because if they go to the doctor and shows up with the medicals, do not reinstate benefits. You should be challenging um, reinstatement of benefits. You should be denying the benefits, okay? And this is the case that we're going to be relying on uh, going forward in making those arguments. Next, we have uh, 
the issue of collateral estoppel. Now, I've talked about this issue in one of my prior webinars or a couple of my prior webinars, actually. And it's one of the things uh, we focus on in collaboration between workers' compensation and general liability claims. Um, collateral estoppel means that an issue that's identical material litigated and decided in one venue cannot be relitigated in another venue. So if a material issue has been decided in workers' compensation claim, it cannot again be litigated in the civil claim. Um, in this particular case, CASA uh, versus Urban Builders Group, the plaintiff argued the proper employer was found in the workers' compensation claim and that civil court should adopt the finding. Now, what happened was in the workers' compensation claim, the notice of decision, uh, the most recent notice of decision said that the matter was continued to address proper employer and carrier. However, there was no hearing, there was no litigation, the judge never made a decision um, regarding the issue of proper employer. But the alleged employer uh, subsequently entered into a Section 32 settlement and closed the claim out. And um, the court said that uh, because the issue of proper employer was not litigated and determined, even though there was a Section 32 settlement and the employer is um, presumed to be the proper employer, that issue is not is stopped from being litigated and um, determined in the civil court. So, you know, this this is important because oftentimes, um, you know, uh, I, I've seen employers say, hey, maybe we should just section 32 this claim just to curb exposure, even in situations where, you know, there's a possibility that the employer may not be the liable employer. Um, especially in the construction industry when there's a lot of like contractors and subcontractors and um, employees, uh, you know, don't even know who they're working for sometimes. So I think it's important, it's a good reminder that before we enter into a Section 32 settlement closing out the workers' compensation claim alone, we should think about any outstanding issues that could potentially impact our general liability claim and determine whether that should be addressed and litigated and have a decision from the judge before we enter into Section 32 settlements. And also at the same time, this is one of the reasons why it may not be um, prudent to do just the Section 32 settlement and close out the workers' compensation claim and leave the general liability claim open. It's you know, it's it's um, it's a foundation of why we say that there should be collaboration between workers' compensation, general liability claim, and we should always consider global settlements of the claim settlements of the claims. So I was glad to see this um, decision um, on the issue of collateral estoppel. We're tracking for more decisions like these um, because it can definitely um, change the course of a GL claim and general. Um, general overall exposure of a general liability claim. All right, that's all I have for you today. Um, it's December, it's the end of the year. This is the last webinar for the year, but please note we will start again in January of next year. 
we will have a fresh new series, uh, some new material. Um, the last time I, um, I, 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 I said to you all, if there's anything that you um, would like me to focus on, send me a message, let me know. I've gotten a lot of responses, so I'll be incorporating those things into my future webinars. Also, I will be doing a webinar that's focused solely on calculating exposure by popular demand. I'll be crunching numbers using Elwick and Kelly and Burns, explaining how it all works and how you should take it into um, consideration when you're determining potential exposure. So uh, stay tuned. Um, the next webinar is going to be January 4th of next year. Mark your calendar. Thank you for joining me this year. This was the first year for the webinar for this construction defense webinar. And I thank you, my loyal listeners. Please be uh, uh, feel free to um, share the word with uh, your colleagues or anyone you think might benefit from the webinar. And um, as you know, I have the handbook. I can send those out to you or anyone you think would um, would, would would like a copy. And I'll see you right here in January. Uh, enjoy your December, enjoy the holidays, uh, stay safe everyone, and see you soon.